My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Welcome back to Hammer at Home. Today I'm going to introduce you another one of my mates. His name is Derek Riley. Now, Derek's lived a very interesting life. He grew up in Perth, worked as a journalist, and founded a couple of surfing magazines while chasing waves and raising a family. Did I say interesting? It sounds like ideal. That's an amazing life. But Derek's also an author. He wrote Weekends with Bob, and when I say Bob, that's Bob Hawke. And he also just released a novel about David Gopalil, which is getting some great reviews. I've had a little look at it, and I love it. But I know Derek because he was the ghostwriter of my book, Life Force. Derek, thanks for coming in. Good morning, Barry. <laughs> you know I'm not much of a reader, but I've had a look at your biography, and it says that your mum was a diplomat and your dad was a pro wrestler. Now, there's a lot I want to know about that, but first up is I want to know how the hell did those two meet? <laughs> it's actually bullshit. It's, um, <laughs> it's there's, brilliant. <laughs> there's, a, there's an encyclopedia of surfing, yeah. and when they um, interviewed me for the, um, for the entry, I thought, I might get interesting. And so I thought, well, oh, my mum can be a uh, diplomat, my dad can be a pro wrestler. But, but my dad, my dad's always worked in the education department, school teacher. Yeah. Mum is the classic mum, you know, administrative jobs. And- okay, well, I'm, now I'm very interesting. Just picture this, the living room at your house growing up in Perth. We've moved the coffee table. There's uh, cushions around the edges. Mum and dad are going to go 70s, at it. Very 70s, isn't it? Yeah, mum and dad are going <laughs> to go at it. Who would win that wrestle? <laughs> Um, probably my mum. Yeah. My mum was, you know, incredibly positive and optimistic, but very fierce. Yeah. Lovely, lovely woman. And her favourite move, if she had one, atomic drop, um, full Nelson, what would it be? I would just be a, a good chokehold, just get behind and, oh. <laughs> That's it, look out, Sleep Dad. Up. You decided to be a writer. Now, I've just learned for the first time, and I thought I knew you pretty well, that your mum's not a diplomat and your dad's <laughs> not a wrestler. Uh, your dad was in education and your mum was a bit of administrator. Uh, how did you get into writing? Did they help with that? Um, I'm one of those people who never really had any ambition except to go surfing. Mm. And I remember I had this epiphany when I was about 19. I was, I was driving my Subaru to the beach for a surf. And I thought, fuck, when I'm 50 or something, my mum and dad will probably be passed away. I'll inherit everything, the house, so I never have to work. Mm. You know, so I had no ambition and I just thought I'd just build my life around being a surfer, but I had to earn income in the interim before I collect <laughs> my inheritance at 50 years old. You know, the sort of stupid things you think about when you're 19. And then, Stupid things. People are writing this down <laughs> now. This is a great idea. <laughs> and then... Um, and then you know, I was just chasing waves around the world and I was just doing jobs like um, I was a croupier at a couple of casinos and, and bartender and a waiter and that sort of stuff. And then a job when I was a croupier at the Burswood, uh, not Burswood, the Jupiter's Casino on the Gold Coast, was a job at a surfing magazine and I was 22 or something. And my brother, who was a really good writer, even though he's a school teacher, I got him to write some stuff for my CV. 
And then I stole a story from a, uh, a prominent surfing magazine. And then I got the job. It was incredible. It changed my life. Are you only mentioned a prominent magazine or could we... Yeah, yeah. no, I stole, we stole, I stole the story from Tracks, and I got the job at Surfing Life. And it's so funny when I got there, my very first day, they gave me an office, they gave me a, a phone and a notepad and a pen. I didn't know what to do. I just sat there all day. Yeah. Just looking at the phone, looking at the no, <laughs> notepad and the pen. And then I guess I did have a bit of, um, you know, just because my brother used to write a bit and my, my dad was, had written a book and whatever. So I guess it was genetically inside me. So it, it kind of worked out. You're a great reader. You, uh, have you always been a good reader? Um, not really. I mean, I guess I spent my teenage years just like everyone smoking weed and, and <laughs> not doing much else and, except for surfing or whatever. But then um, when I got the job as, as a writer and I wasn't a writer, I thought I have to educate myself, self-educate myself. So I got a list of um, writers and I just read everything in their canon. I read every Hemingway book for um, mm-hmm. you know, Economy of Writing. I read every Steinbeck book for uh, storytelling. I read every Evelyn War book for satire and I, and I had all the National Lampoons for humour, and I just kind of built up this, um, and all the Tom Wolfe books went out, and then so I had this sort of um, body of work, and I just tried to mimic the writing, and every time I read, from the moment I got that job, I was looking at sentence structure and semantics and all those sorts of things, and hopefully just um, just getting it come through via osmosis. I'm sure that's interesting to a lot of people. You lost me at Hemingway. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I, um, what, I, my brain just keeps going back now because I know you pretty well. And, uh, and, and Derek, for the people that don't know him, I live in Bondi, so does Derek. And uh, I could be going to work on the living room at 6 o'clock in the morning and uh, it could be freezing cold and it could be raining. But if the waves are good, you can guarantee you're going to see Derek standing there in a singlet and a pair of board shorts, checking the waves out, ready to hit the water. You've, uh, before we get into uh, modern day life, tell me a little bit more about your travels around the world when you're a young surfer. Um, just, you know, when you, when you surf and you're really into surfing, you, you go to a lot of places. So I've been to Tahiti, I don't know, five or six times, Hawaii, five or six times. Indonesia since the 80s, 20, 20 times or through Sumatra. So um, it's not exactly the cultural tour of the world, but it's, um, you know, the Pacific and the Indian Ocean, effectively, and a lot, and a lot of times North America too. Where's, uh, where's the best wave for you? Um, I reckon the best waves at the moment are in wave pools. Yeah, so right. The, so the best wave right now, the wave I'm most excited to go to is, a pl- is in Waco, Texas. Yeah. And um, all the pro surfers in the world are just flying into Waco, Texas. Everyone wants to go to Waco. And it's just perfect. It's shaped the same way every time. Is that what you love about it? Yeah, and it's just a section that's just perfect for doing airs. And you can, and you can surf and you, and you go somewhere and you might go to the best waves in the world, but you're still at whims of the ocean and the, and the, and the wind and the weather, all those sorts of things. Let's wind you back a little bit because uh, my demographic is 24 to 54-year-old women who love DIY and design. Yeah. So I want you to explain <laughs> to them uh, pretty briefly what a surfing wave machine is and uh, what airs is. Okay, so, in the, um, so the, the holy grail of surfing has been to cr- recreate a perfect wave. And in the early 60s, there was a movie called Endless Summer. Yeah. And the, and the, and the whole um, conceit about that film was finding the perfect wave. And they found this perfect wave in South Africa. But that was only, would only appear, you know, a couple of times every year. So uh, in the last 15 years, people have spent untold amounts of money trying to recreate the perfect wave. And Kelly Slater unveiled a wave in 2015, which is the most perfect wave anyone had ever seen. And it was in a swimming pool or a lake in Lemoore uh, in uh, Central California. And, uh, and since then, there's been this arms race for these sea machines to recreate the ocean. Mm. And now there's a couple of places around. There's one just about to open up in Melbourne, uh, Urban Surf, right near Tullamarine. And it's going to be the, the best wave in Australia. Really? Yeah. So this is a giant concrete pool generally? 
Yep, yeah, it's a big concrete pool with a bit of a vinyl bottom. And then they run sort of a, a, a big ram, or to me it looks like the front of a, a grader or a boat, and they push that along and that just creates the wave. Well, no, there's, there's two different versions. So the one in Melbourne is going to be air pockets. It's sort of semi-secret technology where they, they sort of pump air and that creates the wave. But Kelly Slater's pool is a giant sled. It's like a foil and it goes yeah. down there like a big train. And it creates this incredible wave off the back of the, uh, of the plough thing. And you've surfed that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they right. got invited by Kelly. Yeah, really? But I got so excited the night before and got so drunk because we got there at four in the afternoon. It's at this Indian reservation uh, town called uh, Lamore. And you stay at the Tachi Palace Hotel and it's a casino. And you get there at four in the afternoon. You have to be at Kelly's Pool at uh, nine in the morning or whatever. I was so excited because at the time, this is two years ago, and Kelly's Pool had just opened. It was, like, it was full Willy Wonka chocolate factory, golden ticket thing. And I was so <laughs> excited. And before I knew it, you know, you just 15 double whiskeys in the hole and... And I woke up and I went, oh, I'm okay. And then I kind of got up and went, no, I'm not. And it got to Kelly's Pool and it's beautiful. And they had, you know, beautiful breakfast and muesli and coconut and they had wines. And I was just like barfing the whole time. <laughs> and, um, and I was sitting in the spa waiting for my turn in the pool. And I got so excited that, you know, I was excited, but I was hungover. And I had my wetsuit on before anyone, even though I was in the second session. And then I pulled my wetsuit down because it was hot in the spa. And then it was my turn. And I got out of the spa and I couldn't work out what had happened to my wetsuit, but I couldn't get the arm out of the out of the hole and uh, I, was, I was just all messed up and, and I was the Kelly pool was about to start I couldn't get my wetsuit on and I've been waiting you know about 20 hours to surf the thing mm. and I had to go have the guy rent book man I just can't even get my wetsuit on and then the guy had to help me right yeah. but then it was, it was fine because um you know when you're hung over you can focus really well it's actually surfed all right I've been hung over for about 30 years <laughs> if the truth is known but I do know that you're a hot surfer you were you the hottest surfer on that day no, no, no I'm, I'm Mr. Punter, mate. No, just, you uh, go right, mate. I've seen it. You go good. And I tell you, uh, something else you do do well is get people to open up. I know that because you were my ghostwriter. Um, we sat for hours in my home. We cried together. We hugged. Uh, I'm getting emotional thinking about it right now. I told you my life story and uh, you peppered me with a couple of questions, not too many. Uh, and And... I listened to that story and cried. And when I read the book, I cried again because I could hear myself exactly as I said it to you. How do you, how do you write in someone else's voice like that? How do you write in my voice so well? Oh, you're pretty easy to write because you, you tell stories very well and you just sort of turn you on and then just um, start writing. No, no, no big words. <laughs> no, no you, 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 do, you do frame a story really well. And, you, and even though, you know, I had to kind of shift things around and, and often I would um, just, just sort of channel Baz in my head and just write it mm. from um, memories of what you told me rather than listening to the recording or, or the thing. But, um, but yeah, it's a, a teary book. It's a, like, I, I, I would read chapters to my kids and whatever, just be just weeping. Really? You know, it's so beautiful and, and everything's so emotional, you know, the whole cancer journey and the kids and, and, the, um, and your, and your mum and your dad. And, mm. and it's such a um, – you know, I know everyone has a unique story, but yours, yours feels particularly unique. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're sitting here, aren't we? Yeah. That'll tell you something. I, um, it was really interesting for me. I was going through my cancer treatment as well the second time, and uh, I was nervous, I was concerned, and, and you shared a lot of that emotion with me. Uh, but I didn't want to talk about my life. I wanted to talk about what I, what a, a, a man of means living in the eastern suburbs, uh, I wanted to talk about the things I had learnt about the treatment of cancer and I wanted to spread those things with people, maybe the unmarried mother in Townsville who was going through breast cancer. That's what I wanted to do. I, I knew I was resourced up to the hilt. 
I understood the uh, the benefits of a good diet, yoga, uh, meditation, as well as what to what has worked for me when it comes to medication and stuff like that. And we sat down there, and, and uh, you'll probably remember I was pretty angry because I, I I could see my expiry date, and I didn't like the look of it, and. Uh, I sort of uh, vented a lot of that with you and you listened to it beautifully and then just said, yeah, that, that's going to be great, but just tell me what it was like when you grew up. What was it like when you were a little kid? I said, I don't want to talk about when I was a little kid. I want to talk about how to fix this frigging disease and how to, and make sure I can save someone out of this. And he goes, yeah, 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 just, but what was mum and dad like? And, <laughs> uh, and I sort of just thought I'd get this out of the way and I started telling my story and uh, – for me, I really attribute that that those days in my uh, under my um, pergola there. I attribute a lot of, uh, of my treatment or my I'm not going to say my cure, but the treatment of my cancer was helped by the therapy of telling my story um, because you, I did have bent up stuff in there and and I did have stuff I was proud of and I thought it was important. Well, I know now in hindsight it was important for me to get it out. And, and release it from me, but also have it as a legacy that if my expiry date does come around sooner than I want, that my children can read a bit about me. And that's, that's an amazing thing for me. Uh, I, it, it tears me up to hear that you were uh, emotionally affected reading to your children. What, was there a favourite part in that, in that book for you? Uh, I've got um, a lot of favourite chapters. And I remember when we did a book reading at Gertrude and Alice, mm. I chose one chapter because it was a very manly, masculine sort of chapter, Dollar Walls. And I, <laughs> I love you know, Dollar we, Walls. We, we, your dad belts the bikers. And, and for me, that was, um, that was a great lesson for, um, for young, you know, it's, it's really hard to get across without sounding, you know, toxic or whatever. But sometimes you do have to, you know, stand and fight, mm. you know, for what's right. And, and I love that chapter and I loved reading that to my boys. But um, the, the Kiana story when you, um, you know, you, you, your dad is so honest that he that it, on your on your yearly holiday to Kiama, you guys get to Kiama after four and a half hours of driving, and you re, and your dad realizes that the shopkeeper is short, um, giving you extra change, an extra five bucks in change, and because he's so honest, you guys have to drive back, mm. shorten your holiday, you've waited all year before, and just to tell the story of the the incredible honesty and and how little actions like that make the world go round. Mm. You know, if he didn't. Your life would probably be a little bit different, you know, but the, those acts of incredible honesty. Yeah, well, I, very I think wicked. it happened when I was about nine and I'm 59 now and I, it's still like it happened and We're still talking about yeah, it. We're still talking about <laughs> it. As I've said, and since we've, uh, since we've written that book, um, I, I'll tell anybody that listens that you should grab your iPhone or your, your mobile device and think about your life and start telling your own story. I really do. But um, not everybody's lucky enough to have a Derek Riley follow them around and, and, and then turn it into beautiful chapters. But, but do you think uh, more people should, should write down or at least record their personal story? I think um, parents and grandparents, I think it's, it's really worth talking to your grandparents and, and your mum and dad and, and because they'll be gone before you know it, mm. you know. And, uh, you know, how did your mum and dad meet? You know, what was the first thing your dad saw and he saw your mum and you know, all those beautiful moments. And, and your grandparents, like, I, I barely know what, what they did for a living, where they, where they lived, what they thought, what they watched on television. Probably no television, I suppose. Mm. But, you know, all those things. And I think um, you shouldn't have to wait until someone's dying. I mean... Although we, I guess we're all dying. We all have expiry yeah. dates. None of us are getting out of here alive. That's right, mate. Um, but I think we should we should ask those questions. And with a phone, you have a voice memo thing. It's what I use. There's nothing fancy about it. There's no fancy microphones or anything. You just turn on voice thing and talk. Like my my kid today had to memorize a um, 
about a 300 word poem for school. And, uh, and so I just, you know, secretly recorded him doing it. Mm -hmm. And those little moments are amazing, you know, and sometimes I get my, my kid to sing a song with me and I just hit the voice recorder. And those moments are so important. But I think, ask your parents, ask your grandparents, even ask your kids, you know, mm, what mm. they're thinking because you'll always look back and laugh. It's interesting you say that. My uh, grandfather was uh, lived in three centuries, born in the 1800s, died in 2000, uh, 2001 or two, I think it was. Uh, and it wasn't until his, uh, his, you know, his wake that, yeah. I, that I found out the fact that he was a journalist in the First World War. He worked as a personal valet to the king's physician. Now, I sat with that guy for, for you know, years and, and I, never, I never learned those things. It wouldn't be, I'd, love, I'd love to write that down and, uh, and share that down the track. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. For news, sport and entertainment stories with a difference, 10 Daily has it all covered. 10daily.com.au Is there a place you have to start to, to write your memoirs or can you just start? Can you just start purging into that recording and then chapter it up later? Yeah, I mean... It- any, any, you just have to take that first step. Nothing is hard, you know. And when I write a book, I just view each part as a like a like a magazine article. So each chapter. So I'd go and speak to you, mm. and then for the next week, all I'd think about was Dollar Walls or or um, you know or, or Kiama or, or one of those other chapters. It's all I'd think about. I'd be walking around, be thinking about it, and and um, and then I'd get it down. That'd be done. That'd be out of my life, you know. And I then I'd um, often when I've written something like that, like Dollar Walls or, or Kiama. I'll read it over and over again because I like it so much. Really? And yeah, it's like creating a little sculpture or something. And I, and I, and I think writing is very sculptural because you're always looking at it and then you're shaving things, you're moving things around and, and you just, until it just looks perfect mm. and you know it and you look perfect. But the funny thing about writing is often the first thing you write and generally the first thing you write is the best. So if you write an email to someone, if someone just says, hey, just, just give me your impressions of that little trip you did, write it on a long email to me, you don't even think about punctuation, it'll be pretty much perfect. Really? Yeah. And uh, I always say, if you write an email, don't send it that night. Write it the next day. That's because that's the sort of emails you send. Yeah, me, yeah. So that, that's an anger thing, I guess. Yeah, when I've got the shits about something. As an author, I mean, you, you've said it a couple of times here this morning. You you got emotional. You take on a lot of this. It becomes part of your life for a week. I have a few actor friends, and they they've explained to me that when they play a, a particularly emotional role or a particularly violent role. They, they find they take on the physicality of that. It actually pains them and, and the, the emotion might stay with them or the, the physical pain might stay with them. Is there a little bit of all your books in you? Does it stay with you? I, th- I think um, I, mean, I love doing interviews because I always learn lessons from people mm. and I can examine people's lives minutely and no one else gets to do that. And a journalist, you get to ask very invasive questions and go into people's lives and then just walk out. Yeah. But there's always a, there's always a piece of me like, I just spent a year with David Gulpilil. Yeah. 
And then I, you know, I spent a year with Bob Hawke and I you know, spent a few months with you. And from everyone, you know, I learned lessons about, you know, living and, and dying and, and fatherhood and, and family. And uh, they're all really precious lessons. But everyone, everyone pretty much says the same things or indicates via their actions and their character the same things. And, um, yeah, it is really, uh, it is really good to uh, dip into people's lives. Let's jump ahead a little bit. Let's talk about Bobby Hawke then, uh, legend in Australia. There's no doubt about that. And, and you were writing his, his final book. Mm-hmm. You both knew that. I, I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know it was the Grim Reaper when I walked in there. But uh, yeah, it's funny. Someone wrote a review the other day about the goal pool. He goes, "If Derek Riley ever contacts you, just hang up." <laughs> Bob Hawke died eighteen months later. David Goldpool's got tubes in his nose. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, he's an elderly man. He his professional career was over. His political career was over. His personal life, he'd seen most of it. You yeah. must have have known that the the things that you were that Bob was sharing with you on those Wednesdays were. With the, you know some of the la- some of the last thoughts he was going to have, um, what did that mean to you? Well, initially I was just so thrilled to be in Bob Hawke's orbit. Yeah, you know, because when I was a kid, he was the greatest man alive. Yeah, and um, and, it, and it took a while for that um, kind of novelty to wear off, and it does for everyone. Doesn't matter if it's you know Bob Hawke or whatever. After a while, you just you just start to see the man, and um, and one of the things I learned from him was um, was was family and how important a loving mum and dad is, you know, for kids. Yeah. And, and his whole life was based around and, and grew from this incredible love he felt from his mo- mother and father. And, and he's, 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 he was an interesting man. He'd, um, his persona would change according to what he was talking about. If it was political, he'd, he'd go into that classic, wow, you know, sort of stuff. Really? Yeah, but if he was talking about his parents, his eyes would widen or his kids or something, his eyes would widen and it was like talking to a young boy. It was extraordinary. Before Bob passed, did you see yourself as friends? I see you as a friend because we've shared so much. Were you Bob's friend at the end? Well, it was interesting. We did a um, – the Today Show came to his house um, to promote the book after, uh, after we'd finished it. And, uh, and I saw some of the frame grabs and he was so friendly, more, more friendly than he, than he was during the interviews. And I think he did – when I was doing the book, I don't think – because he didn't know who I was. Yeah. And I just came at Blanche's recommendation – and uh, and I, and Blanche told me how surprised he was by the book, how good it, how good he regarded the book, and he said that to me. And I think after that, our our relationship grew. Like I didn't drink with him during the process, but then towards the end, he's going, "Yeah, mate, go to the fridge and uh, get a couple of beers, will you?" <laughs> and uh, we go I go to the fridge, you know, hawk lagers everywhere. Really? <laughs> yeah. And uh, but I, I I love the guy and the and the kindness. Like he didn't ask for any money or anything, and um, to open up his his house and you know. And let me come and come and visit him every every Wednesday for so long, mm. and then do all the publicity for free. Just do everything. He couldn't do enough, really? enough for me. It was, it was amazing. We could talk all day about Bob Hawke, one of my heroes, that's for sure. Uh, but let's get on to David and uh, and what that process was like. So after after I did the Bob Hawke book, uh, my publisher said, "Who do you want to do?" And then they gave me a list of people, and one of them was David Galpalil. And to me, he stood out because. Uh, it felt like the Aboriginal question had kind of gone off our radar a bit. Mm. We'd been tying ourselves up in knots about Muslims and multiculturalism, whatever. But our Indigenous brothers and sisters just got similar, they got totally left behind. And yeah. it felt like when I was a kid, we are really progressing forward. And it was interesting because David Galpalil was the, the first real face of, of the Aboriginal world to, to white Australians and walk about. Mm. And he was this, this um, funny, self-reliant, um, sexy young man who saves these two white people from destruction while destroying himself, mm. which ended up, ended up being sort of the metaphor for um, white-black relations in Australia. So when they said Galpalil, oh, yeah, I want to do, do David Galpalil. 
So then I had to find him. No one knew where Gulpal it was. You know, all these publishing people. Really? Yeah, no one knew where he was. And then, then I met this um, Aboriginal artist, curator John Mundine at this, at this Paddington pub. He was a friend of my agent. This big conversation. He said, I'll, I'll help you find David, whatever. And then, you know, I left. I went down to Bondi for a swim. And then I saw a mate of mine, Dan Wiley, who's an actor. Mm. And he goes, mate, what are you doing after Hawk? And I said, man, I'm trying to find David Gulpool. And he goes, you better hurry. He's dying of lung cancer. And as it turned out, um, Dan was in Charlie's Country, David's last major film, which is fairly autobiographical. So he put me in contact with Rolf Tahir, the director. He mm-hmm. was amazing. And then uh, within two weeks, I was down there at Murray Bridge, just out of Adelaide. And um, I walk into this tiny, tiny townhouse, shitty little townhouse, $200 a week townhouse. And David Gulpool was right there, the iconic face. Wow. And he just goes, I'm David Gulpool. I'm from Arnhem Land. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to start. Yeah. That sounds unreal. From about, uh, I think it was uh, started in August 2018. And I would go down and to um, visit David down in uh, Murray Bridge, and he's suffering from lung cancer, so he was, um, you know, on medication, whatever. And some t- and, and English is his sixth language of his fourteen, so it's not it's not like talking to Bobby Hawke. No, that's you know? incredible. So a lot of the time it was just uh, observing him, and a lot of the dialogue came from his interaction with his carer Mary Hood, who's this retired aged care nurse um, who'd spent a lot of time in Darwin. That's where she met him, and um, and they just had this amazing sort of back and forth. And, um, so I'd, I'd, I'd go down there for two days and he'd, he'd be good for about an hour and I'd talk to him for an hour or just hang out, watch a movie with him or whatever. And then I'd go back the next day and do it again. And in the interim between seeing him and Murray Bridge, I'd go and visit Paul Hogan, I'd visit Jack Thompson. People that have worked with him. Yeah. Yeah. So, so David was in Crocodile Dundee yep. and Paul Hogan happened to be in town at his daughter's house in Belrose and Hogan's is classic. He's, he's the full Crocodile Dundee. He's staying sleeping on the floor of his daughter's house. No. Yeah. He goes, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like hotels. Still smoking Winnie's. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and Jack Thompson was amazing. He, he lived nearby. And, and Philip Noyce, he directed Rabbit Proof Fans. Philippe Mora, who did Mad Dog Morgan. And Natasha Wanganine, who was in Rabbit Proof Fans with David. And, you know, uh, Margaret Pomerantz and, and uh, all these amazing people. And, he's, and, he, and he had this movie handler for, through the 90s and 2000s who um, had, you know, had these great stories about David. And when we spoke about him dying, he said, mate, he's like an old croc. You shoot him, eight hours later they come back and bite you. They're just having <laughs> one breath every six hours. You, uh, you get right into the people that you're writing about and you, uh, you have the Derek Riley opinion of those people. Are you ever worried about the, um, once they've read the book that you and them don't share the same opinion about themselves? Um, not really, no. I mean, I try and, I try and do it honestly and in good faith. And I don't, I don't like, I don't want to, um, you know, dig up dirt, but you can't also shirk from that sort of stuff. You're right. You know, like David, um, um, went to jail for assaulting his wife. So mm-hmm. that's in the book, you know, all that sort of stuff. But I think if you live by the, um, by the praise from others, then I, then I think he's kind of sunk. You just do the best you can. Yeah. You know? So you don't get anxious about that at all? No. Nah, life's too short to get anxious, mate. Yeah. You're telling the wrong person that. <laughs> Have you spoken to David since, uh, since you've released the book? Well, well, David isn't great on the phone. No. Except um, he, it was funny after I first started coming to visit him. So, so I'd give him some money because I think it's important that, you know, we, we went halves, you know, in the advance pretty much. And, um, and so I'd, I'd give him money every time I went to see him. And um, I started getting phone calls from him as soon as I'd get back from my bridge. I'd go, Derek. I'd go, hey, David, how are you, man? And he goes, yeah, good. When are you coming down to see me? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, was, I was going, oh, yeah, in a couple of weeks. I, just, I was just there instead of that. And then uh, I remember once going, have you, are you out of money, brother? Because yeah, yeah, I just heard it. one time I heard in the background, David, you have three dollars twenty five in your bank account. <laughs> so not so much on the phone, but um, you know, he's he's he is a god, he's an acting god. And and everyone I spoke to just said he's Australia's greatest actor. Mm. Jack Thompson said he's more important than Ned Kelly in Australia. 
you know, he's just one of the great icons. And it was really important for me to, um, to put him back up there on his pedestal. Well, you've covered three of the greats. There's no doubt about that, uh, David, Baz, Bobby, Bob and Dave. And, and, and Baz, <laughs> yeah. Tell me who's next. Um, I don't know. I'd love to do George W. Bush. Wow. I think he'd be, uh, he'd be fantastic because he seems like a likeable man. He's done some despicable things. He's become very likeable since he got out of power, hasn't he? But he was likeable when he was uh, president. There's this great documentary while he was president, and he's so likeable. He's one of those guys. You just go, this guy's a legend. Mm, next not, thing, not me. Next thing, but, ne- but but if you met him, you probably probably get on famously. Same, same. And next thing you know, you know, meanwhile Baghdad's been bombed, and yeah, yeah, you know, and so on. Tell me, mate. Apart from books and uh, and surfing, what else is happening for Derek Riley? Um, oh, my, my whole life's just thinking about going to Waco in a couple of weeks. Yeah. for the wave pool that for I spoke about pool. before. Yeah, you love a lurk, don't you? Can I ask <laughs> this? You've seen me in the water. Uh, I've only had one surf since I've been sick, and and you know I'm a bit of a kook. Can an old bloke like me on a on a bit of a mal get in the wave pool? Oh, for sure. Yeah, there's because the way there's a whole bunch of different waves, and there's an easy wave and an expert wave and intermediate wave. So yeah, for sure. All right. Next time you're down at Tullamarine, drop my name for me, will you? Oh, will, mate. All right. <laughs> Can we have another chat again? Would love to, Baz. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch with me, you know you can email me at hammerathome at network10.com.au. Thanks again for all your reviews. Uh, I want to say thanks to KJ. She sent me a review that said, Awesome. Absolutely loving this podcast. Keep them coming, Baz. I want to take this opportunity also to thank my producer, Stephanie Coombs, and head of uh, sound, Mitchie Willard. Great people. Couldn't do it without them. See you next week. Love you all. I've had the time of my life. No, you haven't. You're a liar. Excuse me? Listen to 10 Speaks Podcast. 10 Speaks. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.